everyone. Good morning, or whatever time you're listening to this. It downloads in the morning, but you don't have to listen to it in the morning. You can listen to it whenever. That's the beauty of podcasting. Hey, it's UConn 360. It's time once again for your favorite podcast covering the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. This is big episode 30. <gasps> cool. A birthday number. And uh, Can we be trusted now? <laughs> <laughs> we definitely cannot be trusted. I'm Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts, and joining me as always are my colleagues Julie Bartuka. What's up? Ken Best. I am here. Bringing you the best and the brightest news from the University of Connecticut. We have a, if I do say so myself, a humdinger of a show this week. This is, if anything we've done has been a humdinger, this might be it. This might be it. This might be official humdinger status. Let's not keep you from the humdinger any longer. Let's jump right into it with some husky headlines. Ken, what's, what's new in the world of UConn? There is a new exhibit at our former recording location, the William Benton Museum of Art. Uh, the <laughs> Be- better known as our former <laughs> recording location. <laughs> Most importantly. Most people will know through that. Well, we, we give them their props. Oh, they true. hosted us for, for most of the early part of the podcast. Exhibit opened last week and will continue through July. The exhibit focuses on George R.R. R. Martin's A Game of Thrones, which is the oh. first novel in the A Song of Fire and Ice series that is the basis for the highly popular HBO series, which is concluding its very successful run this year. Game of Thrones, an exhibition of contemporary art furniture, features chairs made in the 20th and 21st centuries. Benton Executive Director Nancy Stuller curated the exhibit and says one of her objectives is to illustrate that decorative arts, which includes textiles, silver, ceramics, glass, and furniture, is also fine art. Two of the most interesting chairs that I saw on display are Armchair Gardener by Mitch Ryerson, made in 2000, of fumed oak, aluminum, found objects, copper, and bronze. It looks like a lawnmower, sort of. <laughs> and Cake Stool by Estudio Campana, which are two brothers who work in that studio, made in 2008 of stuffed animals hand-sewn on canvas cover-over brushed stainless steel structure. This is not where I thought we were going with this Game of Thrones exhibit, but that's sounds really cool. There's also an interactive component to the exhibit. A room off the main gallery area has a Game of Thrones backdrop, and it's set up so for visitors to take selfies. Very cool. Uh, I wrote a story for UConn today where you can read more about chairs <laughs> at the William Benton Museum of Art. Wow. All right. Uh, I wish I knew anything about Game of Thrones. I could make a Game of Thrones pun or reference here. Yeah, I'm not. Hodor? I got, I got I nothing. Know. Something about the wall. Winter's coming. I Winter's coming. Good one. Winter's it's coming. It's not, though. No, Winter's it's not. What's coming, what's coming next is Julie Bartuka's <laughs> news item hey. this week. Nothing to do with winter. UConn was just awarded a four-year, $5.4 million contract with the Air Force Research Laboratory to provide next-generation manufacturing solutions for the aerospace sector. This very exciting project aims to help the U.S. Air Force develop more efficient manufacturing processes. Researchers will seek to understand each step of the aircraft manufacturing process to eliminate failures in specialized aerospace parts, leading to reduced costs, improved component and system quality, and enhanced industrial capability. This is the first phase of a larger contract which is expected to grow significantly in the next year. This program is led by Pamir Alpe, General Electric Professor in Advanced Manufacturing and Executive Director of the Innovation Partnership Building, and Rainer Hebert, Associate Professor of Material Science and Engineering and Director of the Pratt & Whitney Additive Manufacturing Center. By the time you folks are listening to this, another Yukon Gives it's not really a day. It's actually 36 hours. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's like a day on a different planet that takes longer <laughs> to get around the sun. That's possible, right? Yeah. It, yeah. Could anyway, be Mars. Could be Mars. 
uh, another Martian day of Yukon <laughs> giving will be in the books. We don't have the numbers yet because it, people are giving as we record. But this is a relatively new initiative undertaken by our friends at the Alumni Association who helped us out with our first live podcast mm-hmm. and for homecoming. And uh, But here's the great thing, folks. You don't have to wait until the Martian day comes around to give. You can, you can give anytime you want. You can give uh, all kinds of worthy scholarships and causes I donated to several different causes. And the way I picked them this year is people around campus who had helped out the podcast. Did you really? I did. That's really cool. Yeah. Good job. So, um, Thanks for helping, guys. We give you money. That's right. Yeah. That's not a pay-to-play thing either. That no, wasn't a, there was no quid pro Tom's quo. Personal, yeah, personal finances. That's right. All right. Well, turning from the world of giving, Ken, what are we going to hear this week? UConn's Human Rights Institute recently had a symposium on the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. One of the highlights of the symposium was an advanced viewing of the latest frontline documentary, The Trial of Ratko Mladic, which appeared on PBS. The directors of the film, Rob Miller and Henry Singer, were also in stores to discuss the film. Uh, Mladic was known as the Butcher of Bosnia and was accused of genocide and, and many other war crimes. Several of the key figures in the trial at the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal were reunited at UConn for the symposium, including prosecutors, a witness, and researchers for the prosecution team who helped prepare evidence for the trial. One of the researchers is Predrak Dosinovich, a linguist and specialist in international law who served as a Gladstein visiting professor of human rights at UConn. Dosinovich helped gather and analyze documents for evidence during the trial. He's currently teaching a class at UConn. I spoke with him about his work during the trial and the reunion with his former colleagues at the symposium. What was your background that specifically brought your expertise to the prosecution? I was, uh, to begin with, a member of a relatively uh, a small uh, academic team of researchers and analysts called the Leadership Research Team within the Office of the Prosecutor. Our primary job and duty was to provide contextual information to different trial teams working on different cases. Along the way, when I started to work, I decided to educate myself in law, in international criminal law specifically. So I took courses and I studied law. Someone who came as a linguist and philosopher got an additional piece of education, which I, I appreciate very much today, plus on top of everything that I had an opportunity to work with some of the very best prosecutors and trial attorneys in the world. As part of that personal and professional process, if you like. That trial just came naturally. I supervised a team of researchers and analysts, a combination of lawyers, historians, political scientists, philosophers, uh, linguists, working on something that we back then called the genocidal intent project. Our uh, job was uh, to prove that through his utterances, his speeches, Ratko Mladic, the accused, and other members, his associates, all of them, through their statements and utterances, uh, showed genocidal intent, which is a, a requisite element for proving genocide uh, in any international criminal trial. We worked for several uh, years diligently on that project and provided the trial team with voluminous evidence that was introduced and admitted in the course of the trial, plus that we outlined uh, guidelines uh, by creating, for instance, generic questions for examination and cross-examination of of various witnesses uh, that provided additional evidence on top of that. We managed to prove one genocide charge 
in Srebrenica, obviously, and unfortunately, we did not manage to prove the other. There were two genocide charges relating to a number of municipalities in Bosnia and Herzegovina. I also worked with a number of interns who were helping me, and many of them came from Yukon. And several of them were some of the best young students, uh, interns I've ever worked with. So I have fond memories of, of Yukon interns at the ICTY. Linguistics, as you're talking about it, and it's part of your expertise, became very important in trying to show intent and the actions that resulted from people following orders, the similar kind of thought process that went through the Nuremberg trials. You became focused on the use of propaganda and war, war crimes in international law. You edited a book on that subject. You're working on another one on that subject. What were your experiences in, in uncovering the evidence of this? Often, as I teach, and I currently uh, teach a course with these elements, in fact, at UConn, it's called Theory of Practice of International Criminal Justice. I often, uh, when I teach, uh, say, if every time I give a historical uh, survey of all of the cases, so-called propaganda cases tried starting from Nuremberg onwards, I say that, in fact, I can only give some of the landmark cases, but in fact, I do believe, having done substantial research in this area, that all of the cases tried at Nuremberg, ICTY, Rwandan Tribunal, and some other courts and tribunals have this propagandistic element and component in their cases. So my basic claim is that there are no mass atrocity crimes, meaning war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, that would not be based on linguistic conceptual premises. In other words, it is impossible to create a plan, organize a crime and carry that out without thinking linguistically. So it is as simple as that. So when you find uh, evidence of a major war crimes committed in any area in the world, what you do is to some extent reverse engineering. You are backtracking. You are going back in time and space and trying to locate the, the mind and the brain of the perpetrator, the, the mastermind of that physical crime. So, in other That's words, so. criminal intent has to be thought out. Yes, yes, correct. And criminal. related to that, in, in some instances, the charge of obstruction of justice as it might play out following the identification of a crime. Yes, Yes. Well, intent is, in, in and of itself is a, is a, is a very complex uh, a concept. In fact, we in theory and law, in criminal law, we, we, we have two basic forms of intent, general and specific. What uh, we're interested in in major war crimes trials is usually the specific intent. Uh, specific intent is, again, a requisite element for crimes of persecution, a persecution, for instance, as a crime against humanity, and also for genocide. So if you cannot prove a specific special intent, also called, you know, there is a fancy Latin word for it, dolus specialis, come from civil law countries, you will not be able to prove persecution as a crime against humanity or genocide. To come to that point of really proving that someone had special intent, and special intent, I need to, <laughs> to explain this, is uh, generated from genocide convention. So you have listed uh, groups there, right? National, ethnic, religious, and other groups that may be potential target for a specific crime. So that 
makes the, the intent specific. The specific group, in fact, makes it, whereas other crimes fit into this general intent uh, framework, and they are not uh, persecutory or genocidal type types of crimes. Well, let's reflect a little bit on having all these people in one place. You were back together with people you worked with for for, for many years, including the, the lead witness who came off in the film. He was the first person that came out. It was difficult for him to relate his stories. He was 14 years old at the time, talking about lying in the dirt with his father and his uncle and being told, okay, stand up, uh, you'll be okay, and but then his, his father died. Uh, what was it like for you to re- relive that entire experience again? It was a wonderful reunion, of course. On the other hand, it was a very emotional uh, reunion based on on ugly facts uh, from the past, uh, you know. So, so you have these ambiguous feelings about ev- everything. Um, but it was wonderful to see all of these uh, people getting getting together. But uh, it was it was a wonderful opportunity to reflect on many aspects of the trial, and uh, the opportunity came because of the film that was made by uh, by Henry and Rob. Anything we haven't discussed that you think I should know about? I really do want to give most of the credit uh, to the Human Rights Center and Dodd Research Center because we have other separate projects uh, going on apart from this uh, trial that brought us together here. For example, we are trying to open the ICTY's archives. It is uh, the biggest uh, war crimes archives uh, locked behind the closed doors of the tribunal, the biggest uh, war crimes archives in the world, all digitized and stored at one location. And we're trying to, with Dodd Research Center, Human Rights Center, and law school together in some to some extent, trying to, in collaboration with ICTY, which is in fact now called MICT, Mechanism for International Criminal Justice, trying to open that archives and make it available f- for general public. So that's the, the archive of the trial? Uh, of all, all, of the, all the trials. Of all of the trials. Yeah, the whole of the trials. Right. Yes, the numbers are absolutely fasc- fascinating for archivists. I, I gave them the numbers yesterday, and they were, they were absolutely shocked when they heard how much uh, original documents uh, are or were stored there along the way. And I myself, I was trying to count a few days ago and come up with an approximate number, and I believe that I myself contributed to that body uh, with uh, uh, way above 50,000 original pages of uh, documents uh, coming from different sources. And so our main point is we're trying to create the shift from sort of, uh, you know, a legal prosecutorial mm-hmm. asset to uh, a knowledge asset and show that this is now a body of knowledge. It's not a body of potential evidence anymore. As he mentioned, Pedrag is very familiar with Yukon because he was here. He used interns for some of the work that he was doing while he was here. And when I had my last email exchange with him, he was in Amsterdam mm. doing more work. There's a lot of great human rights stuff at Yukon. There is. Just a tremendous amount. Julie. Yeah. There's a lot of great stuff in general at UConn. In general at And UConn. you've uncovered some of that great stuff. I didn't uncover. I have to give props to Jacqueline Severance, who is one of our new UConn Today writers for this one, because she wrote about it first on UConn Today. But I got to sit in a couple weeks ago on a very cool new course being offered to students at UConn Hartford called Resilience Through Mindfulness. So you go into this ordinary classroom and you might see students doing yoga or meditating. The pilot group of students in this eight-week class went into this classroom every Thursday in the Hartford Times building. And after two hours, Hours of learning about an array of mindfulness practices emerge calmer and with new tools to help them manage stress. We'll hear in this segment from the Student Support Services Counselor and Program Coordinator who is running the class about why she's hoping this is part of a larger shift to focusing on the whole student. And we heard from some of the students about how the course has already helped them with school and their personal lives. 
So let's begin this practice of gratitude with just breathing in through our nose, out through our mouth, in through our nose, out through our mouth. My name is Lynn Papakostas Janolfi, and I'm the Regional Coordinator for Student Support Services here at the Hartford campus. I've been thinking about this for a long time now because when I work with students, a lot of the things that are arising relate directly to stress. So I wanted to give them tools to navigate stress and going to school and managing life. And mindfulness seems to be a really great tool for me. I use it in my life, and I thought, you know what, this is a really great tool to bring to students because hopefully they can engage with the practice and create their own practice and maybe use it in their life even after college. So it's a lifelong learning tool and you're continually learning how to grow and get to know yourself, which is really important, right? Because when we know ourselves, then we can better connect to the world around us. So it's kind of giving them this array or this platter with all these different things and then they can say, you know what, I connect with this, this works for me, but this maybe not so much, but hey, maybe in the future it will connect to them and they always have that tool if they ever need it. The first thing that we're doing today is mindful walking. So we're gonna try some mindful walking in this room. The concept of it is just to pay attention to what we're doing and, and the way that we're walking and the pace that we're walking and observing our environment that we're in. I work with first-generation, low-income, underrepresented students, and um, my goal is to support them with navigating the pipelines of higher education, and that means a whole lot, right? And a lot of that comes with a ton of stress. So with navigation, it's not only about learning about which offices to go to, it's kind of that emotional navigation as well because you're gonna have highs and lows in life. So being able to kind of self-regulate and gain some better self-awareness and having those tools in the tool belt really will support you with when things arise and you have an exam and you know you're trying to juggle life and going to work and the population I work with they have so many responsibilities so being able to have this tool will hopefully help them with better navigation. Zena Hodgden, a freshman in the Academic Center for Exploratory Students, says the tools she's learned help her navigate her daily life. I love the breathing exercises. I love guided meditation and doing yoga in general is really good for me. It's helped me a lot because I have anxiety. I was like driving in Hartford and I don't know Hartford that well. I had to go somewhere to meet my mom and my GPS wasn't working and I got really confused and so like I pulled over to the side and I did the breathing exercise that we did and it helped me a lot. I was thinking about it too. After taking this class, I've done a lot better than last semester. My last semester was so stressful and I feel like if I took this class last semester, I'd be a lot better. The great thing about breathing is it's portable I mean, you have it with you at all times. It's not like a cell phone that you forget and you know, so if you don't have that little app for meditation, it doesn't make a difference. You always have your breath. Papakostas Janolfi grew up under similar circumstances to the students she helps and the same federal program that funds student support services known as TRIO helped her go to college. I came from first generation, low income, single parent home. 
I did not think I was college material at all, nor did I have any funding to go to college. But thankfully, Central Connecticut State University had an EOP educational opportunity program that I was accepted to, and they gave me all the tools, but most importantly, the confidence boost that I needed to say, you know what, you're college material, you can do this. So through that, I gained such a respect, and I had so much gratitude for TRIO programs, and that's why I went to college to pursue this work so that I could give back and work with students who are similar to the background that I came from. She sees the course, which she hopes to be able to open up to a broader student population in the future, as serving an unmet need. If we can teach these students to become more resilient when things arise, then maybe they be able to be more present in their academics. And that's really the focus here at UConn, making sure that we're supporting students in being their best. Just taking some deep breaths and just relaxing really helps the body with getting to a different place so that they're more available for the learning process. So my name is Kayla Rivera, I'm a psychology major and I'm a junior and if anything that this class has given me is it's just a break in the day because when you have like multiple classes in one day you don't feel like time is stopping, it's just constantly going, it's fast paced, you don't get a break to just think about other things but once you get to this class it feels like time is stopped or slowed down and you can like breathe again. Like this isn't a class where you have to immediately take out your notebook, start getting ready to take notes. It's a class where you focus on the things we've learned like meditation, mindfulness, and all that. And it's such a good way to like ease up anything you've been holding in today. And that's something that's really been helping me a lot for like studying or midterms, which is really stressful. So that's something I'm very like grateful and thankful for. So we kind of want to get out of our heads and into our hearts and into our bodies so that we can come to a place of peace within ourselves and um, we can just kind of be aware of the present moment. I'm hoping that this course just plants a seed and that they continue to learn and grow and find their own practice to integrate in their life. And I'm just looking forward to see what grows, what comes out of this. So this is a chill class. <laughs> you just stole that from Ken. It's okay. Our listeners don't know we, that. We, we, we are a team here. Exactly. There's no I in team. Yeah, there's no stealing here, Julie. That's there's collaborating. True. Maybe Ken wanted to say that, Co-working. Okay. Anyway, yes, it is chill. I got to close my eyes and do a little meditating with them. It was really, really cool. Um, Very extended um yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping that kind of relaxed our listeners a little bit and prepared them for the excitement of Tom's History Corner. This week a little different. Is different. Uh, yeah. Uh, so this week, well, a lot of people think, uh, you know, Tom, you don't do anything on this podcast. Like, how do you justify your existence? <laughs> Is that what your letters say? Yeah, that's what they mostly say. Yeah. And uh, no, I can I can go out on the mean streets and record interviews with people. You can. Although in this case, I did it at my desk, so it wasn't really the mean streets. <laughs> but um, the mean streets of the quiet corner. Yes. When you think about Yukon traditions in the springtime, is there anything in particular that comes to mind? Mud. Yes. In fact, oozeball, which started at the University of Connecticut in 1984. Of course, it's a mud volleyball tournament. The greatest mud volleyball tournament in the country, according to Sports Illustrated 20 years ago. Happens at spring weekend every year. Mm -hmm. 
and Brian Kirby, the president of the Student Alumni Association, which is in charge of organizing and carrying out the Oozball Tournament every year, stopped by to tell us a little bit about what goes into it and how this all came together back in the 1980s. So Oozball is one of the biggest traditions on campus we have here. It's run by the Student Alumni Association, and this year will be our 36th year of running it. So that's pretty cool. It was started in 1984 with the Student Alumni Association Board, which was kind of the precursor to today's Student Alumni Association. And it started off as nothing more than a couple people playing on one single court that was hand dug and hand sifted in 1984 to then now having over 2,000 students play this year with UConn Fire involved, UConn Police, UConn Rec. And it really is a huge undertaking and it's a lot of fun. How close to the event do you actually start like getting things ready, like physically putting things in place? Usually the the Friday before Oozball is when we start making the mud ourselves. So an outside company, I think it's facilities and, and rec and fire come and help and they dig out the courts for us. And then we come then on the Friday and make all the mud. So we use, well, the fire uses their hose for us. We don't get to use that. And they kind of wet it for us and we rake it and make sure all the rocks and the dirt and or the rocks and the garbage are out so that it's a safe area for people to play in. And then the next morning, starting around 4.35 a.m., we go and we set up the nets and we set up all of the tables and we get the event running so that people can come starting around 8, 39 o'clock to start playing. This might be a weird question, considering that the point is to get muddy, but is weather ever a challenge? It is, actually. So we always watch the weather very closely because there's... I remember when it was the Star Wars year, I think. It was gorgeous weather, and it made for the most enjoyable day. But when it starts to become rainy and cold, it's hard for our volunteers out there all day, and it's even harder for the players who have to then shower off in cold water while it's raining and it's windy and cold. So During the day in Oozball, is there like a peak time? Do people come, like, is it like afternoon is the peak time? or Peak time's usually around... 10 30 11 okay um because we schedule a lot of our the first round games in the morning and then we have the all-star game at noon and then it's the second round and the third round in the afternoon if you're playing you're somewhere between 9 and 11 that's kind of where majority people are some people depending on how many teams we have playing they have like first round spots at like one o'clock or two o'clock but Usually it's the mornings the craziest, where we have the biggest line trying to get in and the biggest group of people getting ready to play. You said about 2,000 people over the course of the day? Yep. Last year, if my numbers are correct, it was 2,096. Wow. So they come, they have a great time, and they leave, but that's not the end for you, obviously. No. So <laughs> once once they their teams leave, then we bring in more teams, and we continue to bring in more teams all the way until the end. And then we clean up for the day, and one of our newest initiatives is actually a philanthropy effort. So as participants leave the oozeball court, they usually get their wristband cut off so that we know that they're done for the day, they're not coming back. Last year, we wanted to find a way to give back to the community on that. So as they cut off their wristbands, they were able to put them in one of three buckets, and then we counted the buckets and allocated the revenue from oozeball towards that specific charity. Since we're Student Alumni Association is part of the foundation, we looked at three foundation efforts and we looked at the Campus Sustainability Fund, the Yukon Fund, and the Students First Fund. And if I remember correctly, a portion of the proceeds went to the Students First Fund, oh, nice. which is pretty cool. And this year we're yeah. hoping to make it even bigger because last year we were just starting out. We're like, we didn't know how people were going to react. to um, They're on their way out and now we're bugging them to do certain things right as they're about to leave. So we were a little like, I think we know this is going to be a good idea, but we want to make sure that the students were 
for it too. Right. And they were that we had an overwhelming response of people. People stopped us to talk about it rather than us stopping them, which I thought was awesome. So this year we're hoping to kind of make it a bigger thing at the end that people know when they go in that that's what's happening. Do you find that people, I mean, it's one of the few like long-standing traditions, I think, that are still really vital at UConn. Do you think people appreciate and participating in something that's been going on for 35 years now? Yeah, we try to brand it every year so that people know what year it is. Last year was a big one being 35, so we had 35 written everywhere. But I don't know if people know how long it really it's been going on and what it started from. In the beginning years, there was not really a theme. It was just kind of oozeball. The first theme I found was 1992 with This Ooze is for You. And then we had Just Ooze It, The Mud is for You, and then it really got, I would say, kind of boring for a few years. It was just Got Mud five years in a row. And then we started to get uh, more popular things, starting with May the Ooze Be Ever in Your Favor from Hunger Games in 2014. And then from there, we started doing more pop culture references, which I think got more people involved. But in the beginning, it was really you played in the rec center for a while, and then once you went, won a couple games, then you were allowed to play the next day in the mud. Oh. So it was kind of a different event back then, um, from what I can tell. There's also, like, you didn't you got to, you had to pay for your T-shirt, which now everybody gets a T-shirt on their way out just for participating, which I think students like because they get something to remember Oozball by rather than just the memories and the couple photos we have online. So they get to kind of collect that throughout the year. So after four years... They could show all four of their Oozball t-shirts. But yeah, it was a totally different game in the beginning. Yeah, there's actually a funny story from the second year of Oozball, which I love. The president at the time, President DiBiagio, he dressed up as the Husky mascot and played a round of Oozball. They branded it as, look, Jonathan's here to play. And then it turned out to be the president, which I thought was really funny. That's great. Yeah, there's actually there's a really weird photo from the event, too. I'll, I'll give it to you to post online. But it looks like Jonathan as it, pretty much. He's standing there holding a pair of balloons. And I've always been interested in the photo because it's been hanging in our office for years. And I don't know where it came from, who took it, like anything about it. And I finally took it down this year and was really looking at it with a couple of board members and I. And we were like analyzing the small details of it. So like we looked at his like pant leg and we saw that it was the same pants that DiBiagio was wearing. And we're like, we put two and two together that it must have been him. So has anything surprised you in the course of your time being involved in Newsball? Anything about it that you didn't expect? I think just the huge nature of it. Like the fact that we get there at 4 a.m. to start it. I kind of didn't expect that because to me I was like, oh, we could set it up in an hour. It'll be fine. But it really takes a couple hours to get everything ready, especially the courts. Mud making is a huge thing. It's a huge undertaking of ours because rocks are a problem when you're playing in the mud. And you don't expect how many rocks end up in the, the grass that you played on last year. So that's a, that was a weird thing I learned the first year, raking the mud. I was like, why do we have to do this? It's mud. Not but just mud. Not just mud. Mud and rocks. <laughs> so is there anything, in closing, is there anything you think people should know? about Uzmal, they take one thing away? It's a tradition, and traditions are what hold our campus together. Without traditions, UConn probably wouldn't be as great of a place as it is today. All right, so this year's Uzball will take place on Saturday, April 27th at the North Campus Fields. This will be the 36th consecutive year of Uzball, and the official theme for this event is Mudvengers Ooze Game, which was decided on by the student body. And this year, there's going to be a staff and faculty bracket. Ooh, you playing? And the winners will face off against the student body all-star team. So if you're faculty, if you're staff, if you're a student, go online, sign up, 
get a cool team name, a cool team theme. It's an Avengers theme this year, so you can dress up in superhero costumes. That would be fun. Other things you should know, you should find us on Twitter at Yukon Podcast. You can find the account where I tweet old pictures and things at main underscore old. I'll probably tweet the oozeball stuff there. Please do. And uh, as for me, I think that's it. Julie, is there anything you want people to know? No, I'm on Twitter at Julie Bartuka. Let me know if there's anything you want us to cover. Ken, how about you? I will be on UConn today a lot soon. A lot soon. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, thanks for listening this fortnight, and uh, let's let's meet back here in two weeks. <laughs>